one of the most prevalent human experiences that is shared amongst men and women is suffering. Just ask our friends at TCU. All right, in all seriousness, suffering is something that you and I experience, and maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're just waiting in it right now. Maybe you're just waiting for it, but there's something about suffering that is a shared experience that can also be crippling. When we're in the midst of deep sorrows, our world collapses in on us. I'll speak for myself. Perhaps this is your shared experience. I can't see like a month from now in deep sorrows. I have a hard time seeing to the weekend. There are tragedies and hardships that have been in my own life that I have a hard time getting my mind to this afternoon's activities. There are people in this room that have shared with me that this is how they too have felt, which has led them to a place of wanting to terminate their own life. This is what suffering does. And what we need in the midst of suffering is to be able to get our eyes on something, on someone, that is greater than the present circumstances to help us see broader and further than our suffering allows us. Jesus promised his disciples that we would experience these sorts of troubles. It's not unusual that these things happen to us. In John chapter 16, verse 33, he finishes a teaching of comfort and what's coming, and he just simply says to his disciples, I have said these things to you, like I've, in, I've informed you, I've taught you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have, he uses this word, tribulation, hardships, troubles, sufferings. But take heart, like be of good courage. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. What Jesus gives to his disciples is a true picture of life. I've told you these things so you might have peace. You're going to have troubles, but get your eyes on me. Look to me, for I have overcome this world. I have overcome all things, all the sufferings, all the sorrows, all the troubles that you are going to experience. Eyes on me. Now the challenge for us as evangelical Christians is an attempt to personalize Jesus. We have domesticated him and neutered him in such a way as that he's no longer helpful to us in our suffering. We see him small and weak and irrelevant. And the book of Revelation is given to Christians in the midst of their suffering that our eyes would be on Jesus in his grandeur, in his might, 
in his glory so that he would be seen as bigger than our present sufferings. That we would have hope and that it would lead to endurance. This word tribulation is also used by Jesus when he teaches this parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13. Remember, he says, the word of God goes out and it lands on all kinds of people. Everybody gets to hear the word of God and their heart is like soil. Some people's hearts are so hard, the seed lands on like that rocky path and the enemy comes and snatches it away. It doesn't even penetrate their heart. Other people's soils on the other side of things, are good soil where the word of God comes in, it takes up root, it produces fruit, and you see faithfulness. And in between these two kinds of soils, there are these other two, and one of them he talks about this way. It's a soil in which receives the word of God with all eagerness, but the sun comes up and scorches it, like the heat. And that heat he calls tribulations. He says, the tribulations, the trials, the troubles, the sufferings of the world come in, and it just chokes it out. It doesn't allow the root to go deep, and so it produces nothing. It's fruitless. That's what tribulations can do in the Christian's life. And so Revelation is a picture of a great throne room and the activities of what God is up to. We said this last week, Revelation is a heavenly perspective on the earthly realities. And Revelation is given to accomplish several things. And one of the things it's supposed to accomplish in its heavenly perspective is to give you a vision that's broader and wider, that's deeper and higher than anything that you know in your present circumstances so that you would have hope for endurance. And so Revelation is giving you a perspective on the realities of life for your hope. This is how we're blessed by it. It's also a word of warning so that you might avoid suffering. In our world today, I think the hardest suffering recently in America has been this tragedy in Maui. Just horrendous. And it hits really close to home, doesn't it, for us here in the Front Range? Because not too long ago, just over a year, did we experience something similar where unpredicted, predictable fires just ravished a community and destroyed homes. And so our hearts empathize with our friends in Maui. And then we just see the, the number of human lives that have been lost to this fire. And when you hear the reports coming out, they're saying, if only we would have known. Why was there no warning? There was no alert. They didn't sound any alarms. There were no reverse texts to our phones. And Revelation, in part, is greater than just simply an alarm or a reverse 911 text. It is a warning of things that are coming so that if you would heed its insight, you would avoid suffering. And so Revelation is given as a heavenly perspective on earthly realities for you both to avoid suffering that is coming and also to be encouraged in the midst of it presently. So grab your Bibles. We're going to Revelation chapter 1. We'll start in verse 9. And we're going to see a lot of this imagery in apocalyptic literature. We said this last week, 
that Revelation is apocalyptic in its genre. And in apocalyptic literature, there is detailed imagery that's supposed to connect you to the larger story. And the imagery that it uses is rooted from the Old Testament, the scriptures. It's connecting the activities that are coming with the fulfillment of what was promised. And we said, because we don't have the reservoir of Old Testament imagery in our minds, like there are some Christians that think you don't need your Old Testament anymore. That's crazy. How would you understand the New Testament without the Old? But because we don't understand our Old Testament, these, these pictures that are familiar to John, the images that John sees, to us, seem like fantasy land. But we gave you this illustration last week, is if you had the, re- the right reservoir, then the picture comes into light. And we said, if you have the reservoir of NFL football, is what we said last week, then I could simply say to you, I had a vision of a two-headed goat. He had the head of a patriot and a buccaneer, the fingers like a wolverine, and before him were seven silver laurels or trophies. What's the picture of? And everyone said, Tom Brady. Like half the room immediately understood that last week because Tom Brady is is a retired quarterback considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And he played for two teams, the Patriots and the Buccaneers. And he, and he graduated from the University of Michigan, who are the Wolverines. And he won seven Super Bowl trophies, the seven silver laurels. It's that we have the wrong reservoir that we don't get the imagery of Revelation. And so today's text is packed with imagery of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus says to us. And so we want to try to connect the dots to understand who is this Jesus that John has seen. Sound good? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, who's most likely the apostle, the one who wrote about the historical life, walked with Jesus. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it was like, John, I'm I'm your brother. I'm with you in this. I sit with you. I'm shoulder to shoulder. The hardships that you're experiencing, I'm experiencing. It says, John, your brother in the tribulation. So they're currently in a time of trouble. John, who writes this, is on an island called Patmos. That's actually the picture that you keep seeing up on the screen. That's the island of Patmos, where he was exiled to under the Domitian reign because of, he says right here, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's received persecution and troubles in his life. And so he's a brother to those going through hardship, saying, okay, I'm with you in this, and I'm enduring this with you, and I want to encourage you like a good friend would encourage someone, get your eyes on Jesus. And in this revelation, he's writing a letter to seven churches, seven historical, real, in-time churches, further encouragement. And he's going to reveal to them who Jesus is what Jesus has done and what Jesus says for their encouragement. Verse 10, 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Right? So this is a letter, an epistle. Write to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We're going to meet these churches starting next week. Who are they? What do they do? The good things about them and the bad things about them. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Here comes the imagery. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet was like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now you draw that, and that's weird. But this is Old Testament imagery of who Jesus is. And for a lot of us, it just goes right over our heads. We're going to go on. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the best is when it interprets itself and tells you what this imagery is. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches that you're writing to. All right, so first, who is this Jesus that John wants to encourage the churches to get their eyes on? Because Jesus, for John, is the one that he ate with, fished with, walked with. And here's a picture of Jesus that's greater than all of the sufferings of the world, and who he sees is this Jesus as Daniel saw him. So in, in your Old Testament, go to the book of Daniel, flip left for a little while. Daniel saw visions, saw a vision of a heavenly throne room. Remember, position yourself in the book of Daniel. Daniel is in the midst of what? Tribulation, troubles, suffering. He's, he's been exiled to a place called Babylon. And Babylon here has renamed him, redressed him, re, you know, reallocated his best efforts to work for the Babylonian government. And there God is giving Daniel a vision, what a heavenly picture of reality for his encouragement, for his endurance to see things as they really are. Because in the midst of suffering, man, it's like, my vision just gets so small. And so to help Daniel, God gives him this picture of the throne rooms. This is Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. 
Similar to, to John, he says, he's looking, he hears and says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, a title for God himself, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Verse 13, I saw in the night's vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Chapter 10, verse 5, another picture into this reality. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Abhaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude here. It's like thunderous, like rushing water. What John is seeing in this revelation is what Daniel saw. But Daniel was told to seal it up for the time was not yet. It was to be revealed, opened, explained, known, understood at the end of days. And here John is getting that same picture, but instead of being sealed up, he's told to what? Go tell the churches. Share with them that what was promised in Daniel is being fulfilled. And what you have here in Daniel 7 is a picture of the throne room of God and these divine attributes, the purity in the white clothes and the hair, the justice of fire, the thunderous sound of the words off his mouth are now attributed with Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. Jesus is being seen in his divine nature. Who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus says in Revelation 1, I am the beginning and the end. It's Alpha and Omega. I am the first, he says, and the last. That's a title that Isaiah uses of God himself. This is Isaiah chapter 44, where he says, tell Israel, the Lord your God is the first and the last. Besides him, there is no other God. And here Jesus is equating himself with the Father. And this imagery of Jesus is the imagery with the Father, this throne room of sovereignty, of dominion, of authority. Now, why does that matter? It's because our view of Jesus is usually so small and our problems look so big. I've told you many stories from my childhood. If you've been around Calvary, you know that I was pretty ornery. My biggest struggle was with anger. I just wanted to burn the world down. God bless my mom and dad. 
And in my struggles, there was a friend, a mentor named Dave, and Dave would sit with me. Dave would counsel me. Dave would get me on my worst days. He was generous and kind. He would actually show up to some counseling sessions with my family. And he would help me try to get my eyes on Jesus. And and what I was most reluctant to with Jesus is Jesus just seemed weak. I looked at the men in, in the world who had accomplished things, had done things, Even bad men in the world that have destroyed things, that looked like strength to me. That looked like power to me. And I wanted some of it. And Jesus just looked so small. And what needed to be cured in me was the Ricky Bobby syndrome of I just want to think about Jesus as baby Jesus. Infant Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus. And and Dave would often encourage me, let's get to the scriptures. You have a poor view of Jesus. And he would take me to passages like Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 10, Revelation 1. Let me give you a picture of who Jesus is. Enthroned, fire, purity. You look at him, it's like looking at the sun. He speaks and you fall down dead. Your picture of Jesus, Thomas, is so small. You need a real picture of who Jesus is in his greatness, in his authority, in his dominion. And seeing Jesus for who he really is is what makes your view of suffering reframed so that you can see wider and further and higher and deeper. It's what brings you out of suffering is to know who Jesus really is. And here John is seeing a Jesus that maybe he had never seen before, a glimpse of it at the transfiguration, but a Jesus in his glory. He'd seen him in his humility on the cross, and now he sees him in his glory in his throne room. And that's what we need, church. Now, John is told to write these things down and to send it to the seven churches. And in this imagery, it says that this Jesus is one that has like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Again, that'd be a weird picture for you to draw. What does it mean that Jesus has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? Again, it's imagery from the Old Testament where Isaiah is told to fashion his mouth like the sword, and he's going to deliver God's word. Where Isaiah is told that God comes and rules and brings justice to the earth, destroying evil, liberating the oppressed. And he does that by the instrument of his mouth. In the New Testament, it becomes very clear in the book of Hebrews. The word of God is what? A double-edged sword. And so what is this thunderous noise? What does he come to bring to the earth is the words of God. He's coming to bring the word of God. This is what sets people free. This is what brings righteousness. This is what brings justice. This is what brings healing. This is what brings reconciliation. Is the word of God. That's who Jesus is. Now, what has Jesus done? Let's go back to Revelation. He says to John, 
Not only is this who I am in, the, in connecting him to the story of Daniel, but verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. That's who he is. He is one with the Father. He is God himself. What has he done? I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's defeated death. If you go back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, his work on the cross freed us. He says, I died, and I'm alive forevermore, and you know what I got? You know what I got? I got the keys! I can unlock anyone's cell and set them free. I'll tell you, when you're in deep suffering, does it not feel like you are locked in a cell? Does it not feel like you're just locked up? Like, how do I get myself out of this? I can't break free. Jesus says, I got the keys. What I have done is I died. I am alive and all those who want free from their cells, even of death, I got the keys. I'm victorious over all of it. I'm the first and the last, and I'm victorious over the whole thing. There's nothing before me. There's nothing coming after me. I got the whole thing. And anybody who wants to come to me, oh, man, I'll, I'll share my victory with you. I'll share my victory with you. So who is this Jesus? He is the one enthroned. He is the divine one with God Almighty, the first and the last. What has he done? He has defeated the grave. And he has unlocked every cell. He has the keys. And what does he say? I mean, I love this. I love what he says to John. See, if you were John and you saw this, what would you do? you'd fall down as though he's dead. That's what you do. When you see God in his glory, you fall down as though dead. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? And God simply says this to John. Jesus says this to him, fear not. Fear not. I'm not against you. I'm for you. Fear not. I am for you. This is a heavenly picture of an earthly reality. And there are many people that look at this and go, this is so made up. Like, come on, do you guys really believe this is happening? Like, the only things you can really believe are the things that you see, the things that you touch, the things that you can smell, the things that you can taste, the things that you can hear. And there's no such thing as a spiritual reality of these sorts of things. Come on. And they would call you crazy. But you know what I would call them? I call them flat earthers. <laughs> this was the accusation against people of faith that somehow thought the earth was flat. I don't even know particularly how broad that belief really was. But there, there were people that came and said, no, you don't understand. The earth looks flat, but it's not. And what you need is, a, is an instrument to help you understand of what gravity is, that the world is spherical, that the world hangs in the, in the cosmos. 
What you need is an instrument to help you see and understand what can't be seen right now. And many instruments have been developed over time to help us understand that the world truly is spherical and it hangs in this cosmos as though hanging on air. Side note, that's what the Bible says about the earth, just FYI, that God has hung the earth in space. And so I'm glad science is catching up to the Bible. I really appreciate that. It's fantastic. But the accusation is that you're so close-minded that you believe in a flat earth. And I would just simply say, for those who say only reality is what you can touch and see, I would just say, you're, you're missing the instruments to see. You're missing the instruments to understand. And so if you imagine 500 years ago, if I was trying to describe radio waves to somebody, they'd say, come on, like what, we're just going to communicate through the air? And you'd say, just wait, there'll be an instrument to help you see more than what you can understand right now. Revelation is an instrument for you, friend, to see the realities of the world that are both flesh and bones and that are spiritual. I think that's the sense of when he describes the churches and the stars. Like these seven churches are historical, real, earthy churches. This letter went to seven real, earthly churches churches. And as sure as you can see those seven earthly historical churches, there is a spiritual parallel. Just as you see that lampstand, there is a star. There's a spiritual parallel of what is happening in the cosmos and is what's happening in the heavens. And I think that's what John is helping us connect. Don't be a flat earther. This is an instrument to help you see the realities of the world, both in flesh and bones, and what it is to be spiritual, to have a soul, to have a God who rules over all. Now, it'd be one thing just to be encouraged that, okay, Jesus is who he is. He's the divine one, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the one enthroned in heaven, the one who has come through the grave and been victorious, the one who lives forevermore, who has the keys of Hades, and who says, do not fear. But where does he say that from? Is he just simply aloof in heaven, saying, go for it! There'll be troubles! You can do it! No, where is Jesus in this text? The, the Son of Man. I saw this in verse 12 and 13. I saw with my eyes one who looked like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And where was Jesus? Was he far and removed? And what does it say? He was walking amongst the lampstands. Where is Jesus? He's with his church. He's with us. He's not far and aloof. He doesn't, like, not understanding your sufferings and your troubles. Revelation tells us that this amazing picture of God with the Son of God is walking with his church and has his hand on them, saying, Don't fear. Oh, fear, I'm with you. This is how one commentator had put it. said, in the days where Jesus walked the earth, this is Robert Towsby. (coughs) 
or Robert Lowry, sorry. Jesus no longer walked the dusty roads of the land of Israel. In John's day, Jesus walked amongst the lampstands of the seven churches. That Jesus walks with us. And so my question for us as the church is, okay, how, how can we be like John? A brother and sister to those in tribulation. Who do you know that's in trouble right now? I mean, just really going through it. And how can you come alongside them like John comes alongside these churches and says, I'm with you. I'm with you in our hardships. I'm with you in the endurance. I'm with you in Christ. And when I come and sit with you, I want to help you have a bigger view of Jesus. I want to help you get your eyes on Jesus so that you wouldn't be in, enslaved and encaged by your sufferings, but that you'd have eyes to see the reality of life from a heavenly perspective, broader and further, higher and deeper. And as we have a vision of Jesus that's this big, our sufferings get smaller. That's what we do at the Lord's table, communion table, is to get our eyes on Jesus. This is one of the ordinances that he's given his church for her nourishment. And when, when the apostle Paul established this with the church in Corinth, he established it in a place and time that also looked forward to the coming of Christ. Chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But it's not just backwards looking. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's his victory. You proclaim the Lord's victory until he comes again. And so when we gather around the, the communion table, we are remembering what Christ has done in victory, and we are proclaiming that victory to the world that needs to know it. We're proclaiming that victory to ourselves who need to know it until he comes and returns visibly, bodily, in glory to judge the living and the dead and to establish his eternal kingdom forever. If you're helping with, with communion, would you come forward at this point? And let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you give us eyes to see beyond our current circumstances. I pray that these pictures of a spiritual reality would influence how we live our lives today. Lord, would you help us understand the reality of these things? We thank you for your word that is the instrument to uncover these truths. And Father, I pray that as we gather around the communion table, you would nourish your church, the church that you see and know and are with. I pray that you would encourage us in the midst of our troubles as we remember the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.
Amen.